Welcome to the First Baptist Church Brunswick Podcast. Join us as we desire to lead people into a deep and thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, church. And um, as you can see, I'm not Chris Winford, but, <laughs> but uh, Merry Christmas. And we are excited that you are here with us this morning. My name is Ethan Floyd, and I serve as a student pastor here. And before I begin or go anywhere, I want to start, I have some dear family that surprised me and made it here from Vidalia, Georgia this morning and all the way from St. Simon's, but with my family right here near the front, would y'all stand up? That's my grandparents, my, my mother's parents, and then my Aunt Edith right here. They're awesome. They have meant so much to me and have been an integral part um, just in my growth in the Lord. I specifically didn't ask my parents to stand up because I was saying that. So. <laughs> um, well, good morning. You know, I don't know if you heard this or not, but in the student ministry, we had a lock-in two night, I guess two nights ago now. My days are mixed up. But uh, Friday night, and there was a point at about 3.30 a.m., I was claiming Philippians 4.13. And I was like, Lord, I can be patient with all kids through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> and then, you know, I see, you know, the prayer start to change a little bit. And God, just give me grace. Help me to care for these kids that Christ who strengthens me. And then it, I saw how, as I got later, it went from like overflow, Christ, you know, Christ-like prayers to like survival. Like 5 a.m., God, I believe I'll survive till Sunday through Christ who strengthens me. And so I saw how my prayer life changed. It got more desperate. But I'm glad to be here. And earlier this week, I was talking with Josh, and I asked him, you know, uh, told him I was speaking today, and what's the setup, and what songs are we doing? And he told me, hey, it's actually probably going to be a shorter time of worship, so you'll have longer to speak. And I was like, wow, favor of the Lord. I'll take that. Three years ago, my first time preaching, um, yeah, it, I had been here for a few months, and pastor asked me to fill in for him. And I remember I was, I was nervous, and I wanted to do a good job, and I wanted the Spirit to speak, and, but also I just wanted to do it well. And I came across this YouTube video. I couldn't find it again, but I came across this YouTube video, and it said five tips for a youth pastor to do well on a Sunday morning. And the five tips were always be thankful and respectful to leadership. Two, never use it as an opportunity to push your own agenda or grandstand. Makes sense. Three, be biblical. Four, be practical. And five, always go shorter than the pastor. <laughs> and I want to apologize in advance because, because if you've watched us closely and consistently been here, you're probably thinking, like, they compete. Who can go longer every Sunday? And we have a chart in his office we draw on. But uh, no, I'm just playing. And so I want you to buckle up this morning because all jokes aside, we do value the preaching of the word here and allowing God to use his word to change us, to bring us to a place in a heart of worship so we can serve him. And I hope we can buckle up this morning because we're going to go, if you want to go ahead and turn there, um, get a head start, we're going to go to Luke chapter 2 this morning and continue in our Christmas series of Luke. And we're going to read the account, verses 1 through 20, of the birth and the story of Jesus, the story of Christmas. This is why we're here. This is the longest account in Scripture of the story of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. And I wanted this morning to be different. For those of you who are similar to me growing up in church, and I, I grew up in Awanas and Vidalia and things like this, I had heard the Christmas story in a hundred different ways. I had played a donkey several times in nativity scenes and things like this. And so I was very familiar with the story, and I'm like, Lord, even me just trying to get up here and teach this, how can you bring this to life in my own eyes? Because I become numb to it. I become numb to the miracles Jesus did in this story, and I can quickly read over it and just go on and go ahead and go to chapter 3. And I'm guilty of that. And I saw I wanted to take a pause button as I was studying Scripture and say, God, can you take me to a deeper revelation of who you are through this? And that's my prayer for myself, as it is my prayer for you all as well, that I pray that something this morning, God takes us deeper and by his divine providence reveals more of who he, who he is to us. And only he can do that. And so with that being said, let us read. I'm going to read all the way through because I'm not going to go verse by verse and explicate everything. I want to camp in just a few areas, but I'm going to start by reading all the way through, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. So starting in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through 20. Students, bear with me. I know that's a lot. Verse 1. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, 
in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the field and keeping a watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying this, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Amen. That's the Christmas story. Let's pray. Jesus, Father, thank you for this time. God, I want to just, in your holy name, rebuke all distractions right now. Anything that would take away for what you have for us in this room, Father. I just pray against the enemy right now that this isn't just another Christmas season we're numb to and we zone out because we think we've heard it before. But you open our minds and our hearts and our eyes to you in a new and fresh way. Jesus, I ask that you quicken my spirit and quicken my mind. My brain frog is real from the, the sleep schedule being lopsided. and I need your spirit to come through. Jesus, just come and bless your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, before I begin, I was praying and asking the Lord, how can I go deeper? I read a lot of commentaries, and I, I read a ton on this verse, and I got, or on this passage, and I got really bogged down. I had to take a step back because it was just a lot of head knowledge. It was good, but it was just a lot of head knowledge. I had to take a step back. And sometimes when I'm studying, I'm guilty of, I get so deep, I'm almost like wanting to teach a lecture and I have to come back and say, wait a minute, God, what are you doing? What are you trying to say? And as I took a step back and I listened to some other sermons and other sources, it's crazy how God used a simple method to take me way deeper. And if y'all are familiar with the editorial questions, the six questions, when you're looking at context, the who, what, when, why, where, how, there we go. <laughs> who, what, when, why, where, how, there we go. Uh, the six questions that help us understand a context of any story, but especially Scripture. And so this morning, we're going to just go through six questions to help bring some things to light. But before we do, I want us to go back. If you'll put it back to verse 8 on the screen, I want to go back to verses 8 through 11. Because I want, how do I say this? I think this really relates to how we're going to receive this today, how the shepherds received this. Look at how the angels announced the good news. Before we go anywhere else, look at how the angels announced the good news. See, in verse 8, it says, In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Pause. See that word shepherds? I think I've always had a glorified image of shepherds because it's a nativity scene and we know the angel came to the shepherds. But in that culture, shepherds were the lowest of low in the caste system. In that culture, they were deemed as unclean and were stereotyped as deceitful and thieves. And you know what they say about stereotypes? They're usually true, or they, they, you become, something becomes a stereotype because at some point there was truth to it. And so shepherds weren't the nicest people on the block. It's a lot of people that you might ride by certain areas or sections, if we're being honest, and you might look down on them the same way. Shepherds were those people in society, they weren't even allowed in the temple to go and present their sacrifices for worship. So they weren't even allowed in the temple. And look at this. That's who, that's who Jesus came to. That's who the angel came to to announce Jesus is coming. Verse 9. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Oh, this is good. Church, we have good news this morning. I don't want us to, to read that intellectually or just academically. I want us to put our heart and our shoes in the scene. It's just another night. You're a shepherd with other shepherds. Just another night, keeping watch. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, 
an angel appears. I like one version, how uh, I think Philip's commentary said, and the glory shone, and the splendor shone around them in magnificence. The glory of the Lord, it says, was with the angel. Now imagine that. You're just a lowly shepherd who doesn't even get allowed into a nice place, and you might have sandals, maybe not. And all of a sudden, this holy being, this holy angel just comes out of nowhere and lights up the sky. And you look at their response, it makes sense. They were terribly frightened. I think we would be too. And something else beyond that, if you notice, I didn't realize this until I was studying. Anytime, any account in Scripture where God shows up and is gospelizing somebody, they always start off in terror. There is always fear. Now let's extend that to us. Whoever comes to the Lord has to come to a point where they realize they need saving. They have to come to a place, and I believe it's because when, when our sinful, selfish nature, Jesus says, uh, those who are in the dark don't want to be exposed by the light, right? So I believe what that fear comes from is our selfish nature that so desperately and boldly wants to hide when the presence of a living God and his holiness shows up. It makes sense why terror is the first thing. Everything in us, everything in our nature wants to run. But check this out. The angels go on to say, do not fear. In church, and we'll talk more about the rest of the verses in a minute, but starting off, this is the same way I want us to receive this message this morning because I believe there's someone in this building or online or extended to a family member that something, happened, something that might happen this morning is going to cause a lot of terror and fear inside of you because this is a very simple but very tough message that challenges everything we stand for. Two years ago, we had a lock-in, and there were some friends. There was five or six people that were friends. I had never met them before, and they came. And from what I gathered, none of them were believers. None of them were involved in a church. And I was like, praise the Lord. That's the kind of people I want. And they came, and we had worship, and we usually have worship near the beginning of the lock-in before everything gets too crazy and too hyper and all the soda kicks in and stuff. And we had worship, and I remember near the end, that whole group just, like, left. And went out of Beach Hall on the doors, and I sent a leader to check on them, make sure they were okay, not getting in trouble or anything. And everything was good. And afterwards, I went to go talk to them, and one of the leaders came up and said, hey, I think it's better if you don't talk to them. And I was like, what does that mean? They said, they're just scared to death of you. And, and, and fortunately, like, the, whole, the Holy Spirit gave me wisdom. I knew what it was. It wasn't me. They had felt the presence of the living God during that worship, and they didn't know what to do with it. They were frightened. And I'm going to show you two differences of how they responded. Out of, let's say, I think there was four to five. Out of the four or five that were frightened and ran before worship was over, one of them came back at 4 a.m., charged up and frustrated, and said, if God loved me, then why would this happen? And we talked for an hour, and at 5 a.m., that young lady broke down and prayed to receive Jesus. And you know what? She had to sit through the terror and the confusion of what is this, to get to a place of recognizing and understanding who Jesus was and hearing the message, so then she, she could respond. So in the same way this morning, if there is a fear, if there is a conviction, a tightening of the grip that is coming upon you, whether it's to get rid of an exposed sin in your life or whether it's for you to begin your relationship with Jesus, because all of a sudden today, somehow, some way, it made sense. Don't run from it. Don't zone out. Let that conviction of the Lord lay heavy on you and drive you to the cross just like it did how the shepherds responded. So with that being said, let's go through our questions. Let's go deeper, and we're going to start with where. I'm not going to go into what, because that's going to be kind of encompassed in everything that we do, but let's start with where. So we read this story, and we see where does this take place? Well, it takes place in Bethlehem, but twice in verse 4, and also I believe in verse 7 or 8, um, it refers to it as the city of David. Why is it referred to as the city of David? Well, a couple of thoughts are, well, David was considered, through David's bloodline, the, the most renowned king of all of Israel in the Old Testament. Through that king, through his bloodline, through that seed would come the Messiah. So I think there were some messianic references there trying to connect Jesus with this prophecy that's been, you know, of, of, of ancient of days of old. But more than that, David was known as this renowned king, so I think that was also setting up some royalty here. Like, this is where it's coming. And beyond just it being referred to as as the city of David, the word Bethlehem itself 
means house of bread. And so there's already a couple of parallels. You see that, okay, there's some foreshadowing here, right? Some of my literature teachers growing up would, would get excited about this, but there's some foreshadowing here. of There's a lot of things that are pointing to the Messiah. And you see that Bethlehem had a rich history. And it wasn't like Bethlehem had a history that was separate of the Messiah coming. It was all so that the Messiah would come. There are three cool things I learned about Bethlehem that you probably didn't know. Jacob's wife, Rachel, died giving birth to one of his favorite children, Benjamin. So already at Bethlehem, in history, you see there's death and life, and specifically death and birth have been associated. You see, death, birth came out of death. Wait a minute, is this the gospel we're talking about, or is this history? You see there that birth came out of death already. Secondly, you see at Bethlehem that very close by the fields right outside the village of Bethlehem, Y'all know the love story of Ruth? That's where Boaz and Ruth happened. That's the field Ruth was in when Boaz called eye of her, when his servants called eye of her. And the dimensions of the story, I won't go into it. Go back and read it. It is awesome. But Boaz bought Ruth. That might sound crazy in cultural times, but Boaz bought her. He bought the rights to her, to honor her, and he bought all the rights for her. And set in motion by this purchase, he began to romance her, and there became a union, and she was redeemed from all her losses. Come on now. So already in Bethlehem, we see birth that came out of death, and we see redemption and union and covenant. And then another cool thing that I think is foreshadowing of some history in Bethlehem is David's mighty men. This is the same place right outside of Bethlehem. They stood when they were in hiding, and they were against the army of the Philistines. And as David was looking across in the account while he was standing with his mighty men, he didn't know his three mighty men were listening, but he made a comment as he was just in, nostal- just in a nostalgic mindset. And he says, oh, right over there, that's the well. When I was a young boy, I used to drink of the water. If I could just have a drink one more time. Little did he know his mighty men took that serious, if you all know the story. And they, those three snuck out during the night, filled up a water sack, and brought it back to him. And this always confused me. You know what David did when they brought that water back? He poured it out. They risked his lives and he poured it out. And I was always stunned like that was so disrespectful. (laughs) But he said, oh, Lord, look how faithful these men are. Look how you have given me favor that I have men that are so faithful. And I've been nothing but betrayed. But look at your favor. And as a sacrifice to God, he poured out the drink offering. That makes me think about how Jesus poured out his blood. So you see already associated with the where we've got redemption We've got union and covenant. We've got sacrifice that leads to satisfaction, that leads to favor. And we've got a birth that comes out of death. And so there's a reason the prophecies foretold that this would happen in Bethlehem. There's a reason this lined up. Next, let's go to when. When did this happen? Romans 5, 6 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 4.4, I love how it says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth, forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Guys, that's hard for us to grasp our mind around. But do y'all see this? That the fullness of time, ever since creation, ever since the garden, ever since Adam was created, there was a plan for Jesus to come and the glory to God and that relationship to be restored. And God was waiting to the fullness of time. And just a, just a few snippets on when before I, I kind of transition here. How do we know this was the fullness of time? Three things that I just you, you can learn by just researching. But one is the fulfilling of a prophecy. If you notice in verse 1 how the uh, Roman government used a census in order to force Joseph and Mary back to Bethlehem, which was Joseph's heritage there. Because he was a Jew, he had to return. If he would have been a Roman, he could have stayed where he's at. And don't think they were being altruistic. The government didn't really care about the numbers, it's, it's believed. He just wanted to make sure everybody was paying taxes. <laughs> that can sound very relatable, right? And so <laughs> he just wanted to make sure everyone was paying taxes. But God used a secular evil king at the time who called himself a god, Caesar Augustus, who gave himself the name Augustus to prove he was a god. God used an evil king to accomplish his purposes once again. Do not fear in the political climate of this country or another country because God moves the hearts of kings like water in a river, it says in Proverbs. 
And you see how he did that here. So one, it was the fulfilling of a prophecy, and the prophecy said he would be born in Bethlehem. Two, another reason it was fullness of time, travel was at an all-time high. You've heard the, the cliche, all roads lead to Rome. For the first time in civilization, there were roads that made travel safe, and because of the Pax Romana peace treaty of that time, Rome essentially is believed to have territory and have authority over all the civilized world. So for the first time ever in the history of mankind since sin came in, there was freedom. That it said, one commentator said if there was a preacher who wanted to go from city to city and country to country, he, he now would have access like never before. Travel was at an all-time high. And thirdly, fullness of time, communication was at an all-time high. Ever since the Tower of Babel, when God confused their speech and split them up because of their pride, there had been such separation because of a language barrier. But now, because of the travel being centralized, the government being centralized, there had become a common trade language. So now, messages could pass through all cultures, most of the cultures, most of the nations, because of this common trade language. So when you look factually, it makes sense. While Jesus waited until this time, when I bet people were crying out for the Lord, God, Messiah, would you come? There's been a 400-year gap between the last prophet and God has spoken to his people. Where are you, Lord? Eagerly anticipating the Messiah, the coming of the King, not knowing what exactly to look for. The fullness of time. That's when he came. But let me talk about something else that just struck my heart. Let me pause. This is a lot. I know it's a lot. Church, y'all with me this morning? We get, thank you. Thank you. Everybody awake. I know it's, it's, it's rainy. I'm tired too, I promise. Um, thank y'all. Focus is a gift. When? Look at verse 11. So not only was this the fullness of time, but look what it says. For today. Stop. Today. I feel like we're singing George of the World again. For today. Stop. <laughs> For today he has come. I want God to open up our minds right now because in the, in the natural, in the worldly sense, well, of course, if someone came, it had to happen on some day, whether it's December 25th or people argue over almost every day, every month of the year. Of course, it had to happen someday. But listen to this. You know what that means? The fact that today, the fact that it's specific, that means we have a religion that is unlike any other religion. You see, religio is the Latin root of the word religion. It means to tie or to bind. You see, religion equals man's effort towards God. This is man's attempt to bind himself to God, and we cannot get to God due to his holiness and our depravity. You see what this means? We don't have a religion. I'm just grouping it in for the, for the definition's sake. But all other religions, this is good, are based on philosophical, theoretical ideas. Not one of them centers in a person. Typically, they have a stimulating start and perhaps a philosophical person, but not one of them honors or centers on a person at its core. Guys, in Jesus, the fact that it came on a day that is historical, we have a historical event where the anchor of heaven was drugged down and it met earth at this moment where heaven invaded earth and housed in a person named Jesus Christ. Where We can look back at history in the context and the time of humanity and say, this happened, that is our God. That's what makes this different of when is there was a day that this happened. Go look up on your own self-research, any other religion. And yes, there was people that were stimulated that were a prophet or a messenger or had seen God. But at the end of its core, they were going after some kind of dogma, a doctrine, or values, never a person. Oh, when did this happen? Gets me fired up. <laughs> But here's the tough part. You see, we have this historical reality which gives us credibility. I say us as believers, as followers. But I want you to listen, church, because what they heard roughly 2,000 years ago with great joy should break our hearts and bring shame to us. Because 2,000 years later, there's roughly over 3.2 billion people who've never heard this story. 
and essentially unreached definition equals they live and die with never hearing the name of Jesus, much less the name of Jesus explained. And do you wonder how roughly within 50 years of Christ being resurrected, the whole church had been reached, I mean the whole world had been reached and evangelized? And they had no advantages that we have today. This is a hard truth. Y'all stay with me. Sit through it. I'm sitting in it with you. They had no advantages 2,000 years ago that we have today. And despite every advantage, almost half the world hasn't heard this message. And I believe it's because they took the Great Commission seriously. I believe it's because every individual realized it wasn't towards a local church or an entity, but that Great Commission, I was commissioned greatly as a follower. I pray that lights a fire in someone this morning. I pray that eats it up. Because the same reason I celebrate and I, and I have joy for Christmas should be the same reason my heart breaks and yearns for God's revival to come because there's so many people who will live and die and are separated because they've never heard this good news that we have. And I don't want you just to be burdened because it's one thing to be stirred up. I think God's given me a lot of passion. I get passionate about the smallest things. But like, passion falls flat in just a short amount of time. Without strategy, the passion burns out. Without strategy, the burden's overwhelming, and it's like the odds are so stacked against us, it's paralyzing, so I'm not going to do anything. I pray that the Holy Spirit lights a fire and moves in your heart so there's actually a way where either God reveals it to you through someone or directly, or you ask questions and do research. There's a way you can take a step towards God. What does it mean to use me? I don't know. I don't, I don't begin to know or pretend to know how to solve this issue. But what does it mean, Lord, I am willing for you to use me to help attack this problem? I pray that this lights a fire in us that is so serious that we have to take a step of obedience and action and strategy. Don't get fired up and just go to lunch and say, that was good. Because I guess what, by tonight, if I do the same thing by tonight or tomorrow, within 24 hours, it'll burn out. We have to have strategy and take a step towards it. Next we have who. So that's the where, that's the when this took place. And there's so much more, but this is just what I'm saying. And so next we have the who. Christ the Lord. The end of verse 11. So therefore, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ is the Greek translation for the old Hebrew word that meant Messiah. Can you imagine the excitement as the shepherds are getting these news? This was common knowledge back in their era, so even though they weren't super educated or trained, most likely, it's believed that they understood that Christ meant Messiah. Their Jewish heritage just believed that they understood that whether they were eagerly anticipating the, com the coming of the Messiah or not, they knew what this meant. This hit, a, this, hit a, this hit a chord. This pushed a button when they heard this. And can you imagine the excitement of everything we've heard about? The prophecies of old, the long-expected one, the long-promised one, the long-prophesied and foretold one, this angel's coming to me and saying the Messiah, the Christ, is coming? I don't know about you, but that feels like that had to be the greatest announcement, the greatest pep rally, the greatest revival, the greatest Friday night lights feeling anything that anyone could ever feel. And I just picture the, the hair tingling on the back of their neck and the spine saying, oh my gosh, my grandparents long for this day. And they've long passed. And I've just been told the, the Christ has come. Oh, man, Lord, open our eyes. This is good news, church. This is good news. Amen. Can you imagine the angels? When that angel come, came, you see the first angel came, and then it says, as they go on to sing, it says, then a, a multitude appeared with the angel, and the heavenly host praising God and saying, a multitude means it was innumerable. You couldn't count them. There was that many. Can you imagine? I just picture how much time went into that awesome Christmas worship service we had, the Golden Isles Christmas, and I know how much went into it. Can you imagine that angel? I just picture him as the choir director being like, hey, we've been practicing for millenniums. Hey, here's the moment. Here's the moment. It's coming. It's only like 15 words. Don't mess it up. It's coming. <laughs> 
Here's the moment. Listen, I'm going to go through first. I'm going to tell them about it. And right after I say this, right after I announce that they're going to be afraid, I'm going to tell them to calm down. It's all good. And then I'm gonna, once I hit the cue, you come through. Can you imagine that excitement? That angel comes through, and they've been waiting for this. They've been created for this. The, the, the fullness of time, the climax, the pinnacle of creation and the universe in which we live in was all for this moment. And these angels were, had been practicing and had been just worshiping all for this moment to come in and, and give this good news and this announcement. And they show up and they say these words, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Can you just see the mountainside covered, the horizon covered? Who is coming? This must be a big deal. There's an army of angels I can't count that are singing about this person. Who is this? Oh, if your heart's there, that's crazy to see it. And just as quick as they came, they left. And now they were left with the same thing we're left with. What do we do with that information? What do we do with that news? And if you see, almost this whole sermon almost was talking about the outline of how the shepherds responded. They were immediately obedient. They went rejoicing, praising, worshiping, sharing the good news, telling everyone about it. I'll be honest, if you want a definition, if you want to define discipleship and where to start, you can just look at those three or four points of how the shepherds responded to that news. That's a great place to start. And we're left with that same thing. How do we respond to it? Once again, they came to shepherds. You know how we already talked about the lowest of low? You see, they were just told that the Christ is coming the long-awaited Messiah who was going to defeat the kingdom of darkness. And guess what? It wasn't on a horse. It wasn't in a tank or a helicopter. It wasn't with a missile or a gun or a sword at his side. You know what it was? He came as a baby. You see, that's God's strategy. He's always used the little to defeat the big. He's always used the foolish to confound the wise. You see, that's the Lord's strategy because he makes us nothing. Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, God made a nothing out of us to make everything out of us. God sucks everything out of us into a black hole to give us life. Out of our death becomes a new birth in him. For those who will hold on to this, it is crazy because once you realize you are everything in Christ... You don't have to try so hard to be something. Once, I re once you realize you are everything in Christ, you're quick to volunteer again to be nothing. Guys, this is good news because it sets me free from me. It sets you free from you. This gospel, it sets you free from yourself. You don't have to prove your worth. You don't have to prove your righteousness. Who is coming? The Messiah, the King, the one who has and is conquering. And he comes as a baby. Oh, Lord, open my eyes still. Who actually came? Micah talks about, in chapter 5, prophesies the birth saying the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7 said he would be virgin born. Isaiah 53, if I've ever heard, I'm sure a lot of you are more familiar with that one. It's the most specific prophecy roughly 750 years prior to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And if you read Isaiah 53, it almost feels like Isaiah is so specific of the detail of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It almost looks like, feels like Isaiah was standing at the cross, watching everything from a bird's eye view and just writing what happened. That's what it feels like. Isaiah 6, oh, this is good. This is who came. Isaiah 6 said, his name would be one called full of wonder, counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father. Let me ask you something. How can God be an everlasting father? He must have had an everlasting son. You see, Jesus, sometimes we can get caught up on this. Sometimes we can agree with our mind, but our heart doesn't really believe it. Or agree with our mouth, but our mind doesn't really believe it. Jesus was eternal. You see, never before had God existed as a man. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit always were, always have been, and always will be. 
They are outside of time. And so this everlasting son with this everlasting father, with their everlasting spirit, and there was a moment in history where there just became a new departure point, a new transition point. And who came, Lord, is a variation of the Hebrew term to be. I'm sorry, in the Hebrew, it's a to be, it's a to be verb whenever Lord is used. And the tense is used, it means the always God. Or the was, or the is, or the will be, or the always am. As he t- spoke to Moses at the burning bush, I am the I am. You see who this God is? You see who came? It is an everlasting son, an everlasting father. <laughs> Some, this is funny. I think so. Y'all better laugh. <laughs> Someone once asked Augustine, where was God before the world was created? And what was he doing? They asked. He said, he wasn't doing anything. He didn't have time. Thanks for laughing. Whatever. <laughs> and so you see, there was a point. I'll back up. The Lord came. And, and that hit me in a different way because I heard something said, no one ever makes Jesus their Lord. And I'll be honest, I've used that vernacular a lot. Well, I made Christ my Lord at this time. And I get it. It's just semantics. Like, it's not a, no one meant anything different by it. I didn't. But Jesus always was Lord. Now, will you acknowledge and surrender to him as Lord in this lifetime or at the judgment seat? That response is on us. But we, none of us made him Lord I love how it's referred to as the ancient of days, the king of kings, the holy of holies, the wonderful one, the mighty one. He already conquered. He still is and he still will. The Lord of heaven, the host of heaven, that's who we're talking about. That's who this announcement, that's what the angels were singing about. And as Jesus came, and listen, he is the Lord, whether I acknowledge him, whether you acknowledge him, whether we choose to be atheist or agnostic or believe in something else, he is the dividing line. You know, people go to hell because of Jesus Christ. People go to heaven because of Jesus Christ. And Matthew talks about in the Garden of Gethsemane, I believe, he's talking to the disciples. He says, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword, dividing mother against daughter and father against son and brother against brother. And I always, that, that perplexed me. What does that mean? That sounds different than what I thought Jesus embodied and God embodied. But no, it, it all makes sense now because who came is the Lord, the Master, the Savior who has purchased us at a price. And either we acknowledge him and get on our faces as I love how he comes to the shepherds who are, who are so low, who had no pride, had no justifications, even if they wanted to try and defend themselves. And he came to the lowly where there was nothing but humility. And look how they responded. That's who came. We're left with what they are. What do we do with that news? How do we respond with that news? I was at GNC in Valle three or four years ago, and um, stands for Good News Club. (laughs) Just kidding, it's a workout story. I was getting my multivit- multivitamin. I was still single then, so I was trying to stay in shape, look good. Um, <laughs> Cynthia's going to laugh at that. She's like, why aren't you still? But whatever. Anyway, so <laughs> tomato, tomato, <clears throat> worldly things. Anyway, so um, I was at GNC. We were talking. I was making conversation, and somehow this lady was just really nice and very inquisitive, and she probably had many customers. I was the only one there, and she was just super talkative, and she asked what idea was I military, and and I was like, no, I'm actually working in ministry. I just got back from, you know, mission trip, blah, blah, blah. She's like, oh, I'm a Christian too. We got in this great conversation. We ended with, and I was like, hey, well, is there any way I can pray for you before I leave? We might not see each other again. I don't frequent here, you know, a lot. And she said a few things, and it was, it was genuine. But the last thing she said was, and all, above all those things, I just asked, pray for world peace. And, sorry, I just had a flashback. Have y'all seen Miss Congeniality? And said, world, <laughs> world peace, you know. But pray for world peace. And um, <laughs> sorry about that movie reference. I had a sister growing up. <laughs> and 
that troubled me, and I, I intentionally skirted around that when I prayed. Because in my spirit, I didn't feel like that was right. But I couldn't explain why. Because you know God doesn't want suffering. He says he's slow in his, in his long suffering towards us, desiring that all would repent and come to him. You know he's not an evil king. You know he's a, we know he's a good father. And I realized what she thought is what a lot of the world thinks, that if we just think this religious stuff is good, if we just think when we go to church twice a year, like he said, Christmas and Easter are the most frequented times at church, if we just, we have this justification built up. But if we don't come to Jesus terrified and humble and scared to death like those shepherds in response to him, that's not going to be peaceful. That is the Lord who came, the dividing line. Next, let's look at how. How he came. Everybody still good this morning? I know it's, I know it's a lot, but it's, it's building. It's building. Um, how he came, simple. He was born. Herb Hodges, one of me and my dad's heroes, my dad and I's heroes, said, what's the greatest miracle that's ever occurred? Some people said creation. Some people, a lot of people said, you know, the crucifixion and the resurrection atonement for sins, eternal life. He argues no. By far the greatest miracle is that the fullness of God, the King of kings, the everlasting one outside of time, came down in the fullness of man and somehow made it work. They didn't fuse together, but they didn't get confused either. He kept one hand in heaven, fully God, one hand in, in, uh, in, on earth in our time, fully man. I love one quote by a great theologian said this, the great mystery of the manger is that God should be able to translate deity and humanity without even discarding the deity or twisting and distorting the humanity. You see, Jesus can fully identify with us because he is both fully God but also both came fully man. He showed us the revelation of who God is but also the revelation of what man should be. I don't know about you, but I have this weird thing that if I feel like somebody can't relate to me, I become a prideful person really quickly. If I ever feel misunderstood, God's working on me, have grace, just being honest. But if I ever feel misunderstood or like that person can't relate, I don't really respect what they say. I remember one time I was at the Y many years ago, and I was just shooting, had my headphones in, getting a little workout, and um, there was like a 16-year-old kid who like interrupts me and is like, hey, bro, you're doing really good, but actually your form would be better if you did this. And he like, I was trying to be humble and nice. You know, I was like 23, 24, so I still was like really prideful about it. But I, he interrupts me and tells me how I should be shooting. First of all, it was 100% false. <laughs> and second of all, he was like just really bad at basketball. And I remember in my heart, I was like, bro, you, ain't, you have nothing to say to me. Just leave. There's a whole another half a gym open over there. Go shoot on that goal. And I share that because, yes, that I've, Sorry, like I said, I'm not being spiritually accurate. I'm just being honest. That was my heart. But when I feel like someone can't relate to me, I quickly tune out. But praise the Lord, church, we have good news because we have a father and a son who can relate to us because he became us. And it says he was tempted in every way that we are and he knew no sin. Oh, that's good news because he fully understands me. He knows he's right there with me, watching over me. He knows everything I've gone through, every conversation I've had, every internal conversation I've had, everything I've experienced, every sin I've given in, every sin I've resisted. He knows that he empathizes, he sympathizes, he relates. So when he speaks, him being born as a baby is so crucial. From a theological standpoint, in order to be the atonement and the substitutionary, the, the, the sacrifice, the substitute for my sins, he had to become like me to take it on. There's a story uh, my dad and I have always talked about. I can't remember where he heard it from, but there's a story about an ant bed trying to communicate with ants. And let's just say Cynthia and I are at our house. And it's a normal Monday, Thursday. Every Monday, Thursday, she cuts the grass. <laughs> so that's a joke. She doesn't cut the grass. So <laughs> she's not here, so that's good. But let's just say she's cutting the grass. And there's this giant ant mound. And we had a lot of giant ant mounds in my day growing up. And I loved, it was so satisfying running over them, putting the blade really low, if y'all know what I'm talking about, as low as you can, and just, just leveling that thing. 
And because fire ants gave me trouble. I got bit all the time. And so it was like some payback, you know. Well, it's like a lawnmower's coming, and you go up to that ant bed, and you're like, hey, psst, little ant, you should move. <laughs> Your home's about to be destroyed. Some of you at the very bottom might escape, and some of you might get lucky. But probably like 90% of you are about to get chopped into pieces. Get out now. Evacuate. Code red. Whatever vernacular you use, ants. Get out. Now, if I go, even if I bend down and my lips are almost touching the ant mound, are they going to respond to me? No. If I really wanted to communicate with those ants and relate to them, I would have to become an ant. Our God is so big and outside of time, and our God who has always been spirit, never before anything but spirit. God the Father was spirit. God the Son was spirit. God, Holy, His Spirit was spirit. And all of a sudden, at a moment, a moment in humanity, for our sake and our will of time, He came into it and became us so that He could relate to us out of love for us. Amen, Amen indeed. Church, this is good news. I'm going to just start clapping at the microphone. This is good news. <laughs> now let's talk about why he came. And some of you said, hey, amen, this is the last question. <laughs> let's go back to verse 11. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. See the word Savior there? The word Savior presents a problem. It implies you have to be saved from something, like we talked about earlier. And as I was doing this and I was listening to a sermon, the man used a quote from a Christmas card to talk about how it was beautifully written, but it was so deceiving. And I'm just going to reread this Christmas card that, I, that is, it's not mine. I'm going to read this Christmas card that sounds really good, and when I first heard it, everything in me wanted to agree with it. But I'm going to ask you not to reply and don't agree with it because there's something that's wrong with it. You see, the quote says, If our greatest need would have been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need would have been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need would have been money, God would have sent us an economist or a businessman. If our greatest need would have been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. Don't reply. Listen. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a Savior. Wait. That's false. Before you throw tomatoes, that's false. See, forgiveness sterilizes you. Like these walls that are beautiful. For the most part, they're, if you've got a microscope, maybe not, but like they're clean. Think about, a, for those of you who are builders or construction workers, when you whitewash a wall... Once you clean it, it's blank. Ethan's greatest need, your greatest need is not forgiveness. Yes, God sterilizes me. Yes, God forgives me. Yes, he atones for my sin. But then I'm just blank. I'm just sterile hands in the doctor's office. They can't touch anything. I have the same essence as that wall. Blank. Let's keep going. I love this quote. It says, your greatest need is not forgiveness. And that is one of the biggest lies Satan has hooked into the church. Because you see, if we believe that, we stop there. Because that becomes the most important thing. If we were to actually begin to run with God's purpose and live on mission, he would burn the dirt and sin and sanctification, or dirt and sin off of us and sanctification in us in such a way we would blaze with glory. But instead, what happens, being honest, we're playing catch up and we're self diseasing, self sickening ourselves, always so sin conscious, always all begging the Lord to forgive us over and over and over. It's like I wash my feet just to walk right back outside barefooted. It's going to keep happening. I'm going to keep, we're going to keep spinning our, our wheels in the circles here. Forgiveness is not our greatest need. Eternal life is what he saved us for. But to have eternal life, you have to be forgiven. It's a prerequisite. The sin stain has to be washed off white as snow. The blood that runs 
that ran from Christ has to cover you. And so I don't want to downplay forgiveness because forgiveness is by the very fact, let's just throw some scripture at it. It says, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And y'all know, y'all know this one. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was. Amen. You see, let's not downplay forgiveness because there's a document signed in heaven in the Lamb's Book of Life. If you have bowed the knee to Jesus with a humble heart, there's a document with your name signed on it that's sealed on earth by the blood of Christ, delivered to your heart by the Holy Spirit, and stamped there an act of God's miraculous provision on the cross. Forgiveness is no slight. And you know, every time it talks about all sin or sin in Scripture, it uses it in the perfect tense. And you know what that means? It means in whatever tense, it is perfectly applicable. That means the sins that I did, the sins that I am doing, and sins that I will do. This is crazy. This is, this is where religion separates from Jesus, from Christianity. That means once I have bowed the knee and surrendered in Christ, this isn't a, my opinions, once saved, always saved versus workspace. This is, a, this is what Scripture teaches in the perfect tense, when Christ paid for you with the blood on the cross, he paid for everything you did do, everything you are doing currently, and everything you ever will do you don't even know yet. Christ's blood has covered you where nothing else I can do now that I'm seen in his righteousness. There is nothing else I can do that leads to eternal punishment or separation from him in regards to our relationship. Oh, is that freeing? I think it's in Galatians, it says, oh, for freedom's sake, God set you free. Oh, I can walk in freedom. I don't have to operate out of guilt now. I operate out of grace. I don't have to say, oh, I need to read my Bible. I can say, I want to. I have to go to church. I get to. You see the difference between guilt living and grace living? Oh, I hate that I missed my quiet time this morning, man. I just woke up like, man, you know what? I'm missing a little fuel. My spirit's off, but I'm going to just start talking to him now. You see the difference between guilt and grace living? And a lot of times we stop at forgiveness because we really have been tricked without realizing it because it's so subtle but so deceptive that our greatest need is forgiveness. No, our greatest need, when he uses the word Savior, is salvation, which means full redemption, which means eternal life. You see, when God, when Jesus, let me find my spot because I really like what I typed. (laughs) You know, between salvation and death, I can get really dirty and slimy until God takes me home. But fortunately, that same bath that he baptized me in and and washed me in is that same bath he puts me in over and over to keep cleaning me up. The thing is, after that first baptism, in his death and resurrection, I always have the robe on whether I'm dirty under it or not. That's salvation. That's what forgiveness really is. So salvation on one hand is Jesus Christ, can, Jesus Christ can take out of the human heart everything that sin has put in it. On the other hand, he can put back into the human heart everything that sin has taken out of it and much, much more. That's salvation. You see, he came so that we walk in a new way of life. So we can put off the old man and put on the new man, it says in Colossians. And also it says in, in Scripture, just as we have been buried with Christ, we also have been resurrected to walk in that new way of life. We say that every time we baptize somebody. You hear it from Pastor Chris Winford every time he baptizes somebody. I love in Galatians, it says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Second Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. In John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come so you may have eternal life, or other translations say abundant life. John chapter 4, two different statements. He says, but whoever drinks of the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up, exploding up to eternal life. Later, he says, my food is to do the will who sent me. You see, salvation is not centered on forgiveness, church. Believers, brothers, sisters, salvation is not centered on forgiveness. It is the first component of salvation. But here's what salvation is. Salvation is saving us from the sin-stained, sin-filled, sin-stolen life, sin-destroyed life, so that we might walk in abundance, so that we might walk in the Spirit, so that we might overflow with the gifts of the Spirit, with the mind of Christ coming out of us. I am saved not, not just to be cleansed, but to be replaced with something. God takes the sin out and wants to fill it with something else. 
Do we see that? Because if we believe our greatest need is, is, is forgiveness, we just stop. Two students prayed to receive Jesus last night and praised Jesus at a lock-in. That's not supposed to happen. Thank you. I said that to another pastor we were meeting. He said, at a lock-in, what are you doing? And I was like, everything we do, we bring up the gospel. Do you not? And I didn't mean to like come off as mean, but why would I not have it bring up the gospel? Anyways, that's how I know. But they got saved. That's great. But they didn't get saved just to be cleansed so they can go on this high and not be discipled and not be replaced with this abundant life and not walk in obedience in this radical missionary lifestyle that leads to some tough times but, but, but good times. They didn't get saved just to sit there because here's what happens. If we're not careful, we'll fall back in love with sin. If there's any English teachers in here, I didn't read this book, but I just read the cliff notes of it, so I don't want to dishonor it. But there's an old book by Silas Marner. Anybody read Silas Marner? Old English tale? Go back and reread it. See how much gospel's in there. It was a man who, he'd been accused of something after he got injured and pretty much shunned from society. And once he got better, he moved to a new community. He hated everybody. He was bitter. He didn't outwardly hate people. He wasn't physical, but he was bitter in his heart and passively hated people because he felt just so alone. And so what he did is he was a weaver. And so all his money, he would come back every day. He would put into his treasure box, his safe, his sash, and he would count his money. That's all he had. It was he and the money. It was his love. It was his treasure. And so one day someone followed him. And through the window, they watched where he hid his money. And when he was gone, they came and stole everything. This man who had no friends, really didn't feel like he had a purpose, came back home and was tortured because his stash, his heart was gone. And do you think he loved that money any less when it was gone? No. He actually fantasized over it and loved it more and yearned for it more. You see, believer, let me pause in the story for a second. Side note, believer, when you get saved from Christ, you're not, you're not immune. You're not invulnerable. If you fall back in love with sin, it can be worse than it was the first time once you've tasted of it again. If you start chasing sin, it's quick for that heart to become numb and desire those things because now we don't have it anymore. And so as the story continues, um, you know, he's still working, trying to kind of rebuild a stash. And one day it's a cold winter and a mother dies outside of his door while he was out. And the door was left unlocked. And he comes back and he finds a baby by the fireplace. And in short, he ends up adopting this baby and she stole his heart. And he fell so in love with her. And one day he gave her off to a, a young man who was suiting or a gentleman who was pursuing her hand in marriage. And it, her, he became, little by little, he became a productive, awesome person in the community. And people saw the way he loved people and loved his daughter and his daughter loved him. You see, over time, his love for money was taken away because it had to be replaced with something else. His love for that child. In the same way in this Christian life, Christ came to save us from our sins. Not to just save us and forgive us, but to save us from that lifestyle. And I can't, the only way to take a desire out, you can't take your desires out. The only way to remove a desire is to desire something else more. Jesus literally saved us so that we would love him more than everything else. That's the Christmas story. That's the Christmas story. And I just want to challenge church, if the, if the heavy hand of God, the conviction of fear has come upon you, whether you've been walking away from the Lord and you've already known him, and you realize you've turned to other things, you've turned to that gold. You're way more in love with everything else. I encourage you to sit in that conviction and respond to God. And for someone right now, maybe that hand is heavy on you and you realize this is the first time it made sense why Jesus came and who he is and how he came and what that means for me. 
And that free gift of salvation is offered to you here today. It's very simple. Really, the main thing that matters is the way in which you come. And so if that's you, I pray that you'll come to the front. Come and talk to me. Talk to the person who invited you here. Yeah, let's pray. Jesus, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this Christmas story, God, about the birth of Christ. Jesus, I pray that you reveal this to us in a new way and we respond the same way the shepherds did with immediate obedience and excitement, telling everyone about it, praising you along the way. In Jesus' name, amen.